Well, I got to say, as a producer, you know, we usually try to keep these episodes from 35, 45 minutes roughly. But man, Kim Strobel, she is a plethora of knowledge. Um, Jeff, I mean, what did you think? I was blown away. Yeah, the same. I, Kim and I had met, you know, prior to the show as, as one who listened or watched would see. But the, the dilemma is, it's such a relevant topic. And the fact is, she does have this experience and this background and this kind of the scientific perspective on happiness and contentment amidst this very challenging time. So uh, we could have just gone on forever. I, no, no. I found it useful. Yeah. I mean, I was getting nervous on time, but it was every time I was like, uh, you know, we need, we probably need to start landing the plane here. She would just get into a whole new uh, topic and was just blowing me away. And I just wanted to hear more. So, and, and look, you know, we have different experiences, you and I, and you have not, say, been a, quote, classroom teacher, right? You work for an educational organization, but I have to assume that the things that she was mentioning, the themes are also relevant to you and others, wouldn't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when she was talking about um, teaching uh, gratitude and really what's involved in, in trying to bestow that on our youth i'm i'm doing that now with my nine-year-old daughter and just you know because it's a you know a, we she lives in two households so you know trying to make sure that, that gratitude and and happiness and really where to look for positivity is really important um and i also thought that her comments on um her comments on I lost my train of thought for a second. Well, you know, <laughs> oh, no, I, I'll, I'll jump in because I think the what's, what's interesting to me is that um, I, we talked about education mm. um, for sure because that's, you know, that's that's what we, we focus on. But I almost asked her this too, this, this, this issue and this dilemma of the negative thoughts that we have throughout the mm. day. Yes. Right? I mean, that's, that's not as an educator. That's, right. that's as a person. Yeah. Right? So I... I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I do that exact same thing. The, the kinds of things that go through my head and how many of them are negative or some of the messages I tell myself. I mean, sometimes I'm surprised I can still get up based upon right. the things that I think right. about. So yeah. that was extremely helpful for me. Well, uh, and, and I know where I was going. The uh, When she was talking about heart emotions, letting people feel those heart emotions, I, I, I found myself going, oh, you know, if I ever have a friend or a family member, I always try to... I think I'm doing a good thing sometimes and trying to give them perspective like, hey, I know you're going through this rough time and it is really hard and stuff like that, you know, but don't beat yourself. I mean, man, look at this other situation. It's, you know, a million times worse or like that. You've got a great situation when you look at it from a different angle, you know, where she's saying maybe that's not always the best. Let it let them feel those hard emotions, but then really try to find that path forward. Yeah, you know, feel it but also find a constructive path for it. I thought that was really great to hear. So that was kind of like a, I was thinking of some recent situations or like that, where that would have, that advice would have come in handy. So I'm glad I heard it today. So I almost made a joke and said, I, I feel like you're um, uh, being sexist and teasing me for being a man, because what I sometimes <laughs> do is listen to somebody's dilemma or yeah. challenge or even emotion, emotions. And then I try to turn that as quickly as I can to maybe a strategic plan on how to get out of it. Right, or what would be the way to remedy this dilemma? And I will well, dive there and push someone else there. And of course, she's saying, 
that's not helpful. So well, in some ways, this would help me in my marriage. Call that mansplaining or like that. But I mean, there is actual, you know, uh, psychological, you know, research that kind of backs up how men and women really attack a problem where uh, is the the female approach is traditionally to kind of be that nurturer that they listen, they absorb. Um, whereas as men, you know, we listen and we absorb, but we, we try to process that in a different way. And instead of just kind of being there to be the hug or the shoulder, we're like, how do we fix this problem? Which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just how we approach it. Um, and sometimes I got to fix this problem for you right now. It's not necessarily what somebody wants to hear back. They just want to, they just want you to listen. Sometimes they just want that hug. They want that shoulder. Um, not necessarily uh, immediately a plan forward. So yeah, it's also a, as as Kim eloquently described <laughs> us, right? Because <laughs> I I was feeling like this sense of guilt as she's describing right. this, like oh gosh, this is this is what I do. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, Chris and I agree, right, Chris? I mean, this was a oh, yeah. great conversation, yeah. and you know, Kim is Lots impressive. Lots of things to take home. Lots of things to take home. Yeah. Whether you're an educator or not, yeah. bottom line is. Um, we, Whether you're we, a parent, a teacher, a leader, all that. I think all, all that. All the above. All that. So uh, enjoy, ladies and gentlemen, Kim Strobel, and we'll make sure to circle back with her as soon as her book is published. Everyone be well. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I am Jeff Rose, and typically I spend... 20, 30 seconds describing the intent or the why of the content that we're bringing to you in this leader chat. If you have any sort of empathy for educators, leaders in education, if you've listened or watched leader chat over time, then you would know very clearly as soon as we invite this guest and jump into our conversation and create this discourse on your behalf, you'll understand the why. As it relates to the challenge, the, the burden that many of our educators are carrying, and also some of the solutions needed to help them kind of rise to, you know, uh, they sometimes feel underwater when we're trying to ask them to look to the horizon. And so that's not, that's much easier said than done. And so this guest is, um, is perfect for this topic and this ongoing challenge and burden that educators are actually facing. So um, I'm going to introduce you here in a minute um, after I read the bio of Kim Strobel. Kim Strobel is an internationally known motivational speaker for educators, school leaders, and organizations and travels the globe, sharing the impacts of happiness on well-being and student achievement. As a former teacher and curriculum director, so she's from the trenches like many of us, um, her goal is to inspire you by, by providing thought-provoking research, heartwarming stories, and simple action steps that get you through life-changing results. Kim is a powerhouse, influencer, consultant, and happiness coach whose work shapes the way schools, businesses, and organizations reclaim their happiness, ignite their passion, and lead with purpose. She's also an avid animal lover, having rescued 171 dogs. 171 dogs, a, uh, a fierce runner, and a lover of life. So without further ado, let me invite Kim to the screen. Say, welcome, Kim. And the last time we talked, 
I think you had just finished some ridiculous 10-mile run or something and talked about it as though it was nothing. I think there was a dog on the other side of the room. And so your bio is fairly accurate, but how are you doing? And welcome. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Yes. Um, usually there's three dogs in this office with me, but they've all been sequestered to the bedroom for this very important conversation today. But I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and the people who are leading schools and the teachers who are embedded within the classroom walls. So thank you for having this conversation that I feel is really critical at this time. It, it, it really is. Not only has it been critical, but probably never in a time in our history, in, in our lifetimes, has it been this critical. But before we dive in and I, you know, start peppering you with questions, I just read your bio. I shortened it to a degree. Can you give our listeners a little bit more background information on you, maybe your, your why, your motivation? You've had this incredible story that brings you, uh, that brings us to this conversation, but what would be important for them to know? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of really strong whys that drive the reason I get up in the morning and feel very dedicated and driven to continue doing this work. And one is as a former fourth grade teacher, I think it was my third year of teaching and I had a student who completely changed my life. Um, early on in my teaching career, I was lucky enough to encounter a book about the importance of relationships with your students. And so I I'm proud that I always took the time at the beginning of the year to establish those. But at the same time, there was still so much that I really didn't understand in the background of that. And so as we're going through the school year, you know, I, of course, got this student on my list, Corey, who I had already been told, we had been told as fourth grade teachers, you better hope you don't get Corey Gold on your roster, which... <laughs> that saddens me, but it's the truth, right? It's like yes. there's this thing that follows our students, you know. And so sure enough, there he is, you know, number seven, I think, on my roster. And he was like the Tasmanian devil in my classroom. I mean, he just um, came in like this whirlwind. He did everything he could to derail my lessons. He poked and prodded and, uh, you know, bothered all of the students in the classroom. He never had his homework. He never paid attention, all of these things. And so, you know, I greeted every morning, all of my kids in the hallway, you know, good morning, Samantha, good morning, Treader, you know, good morning, Corey. And in my head, I'm thinking, my God, here we go again today. <laughs> right. Um, but we had this little circle time um, at the at, at the end of recess, lunch recess. And at that time, I actually taught my kids meditation, which ended up being like a kind of a a voodoo thing to do back then. So my school leadership team said, like, you can't call it that, Strobel. I'm afraid the parents are going to be asking, like, what are you doing? And so we called it like grounding time or something like that. And then we would go around and everybody would share something they were thankful for or something they appreciated about someone in the class or a struggle. And so I guess I had created enough of a rapport with Corey that on this uh, late November day, he actually shared that his mother was um, an addict and an alcoholic and that she had been thrown in jail. The night before he started to cry, he did not know where he was going after school. He had an absent father. And that conversation led into about 20 other things that were going wrong in his life from not having electricity to stay warm, not having food when he went home or on the weekends. And so I still can, 
Jeff, remember the exact moment that this kid began to share his story with the entire class and it changed me and it changed every single student in that classroom. And I wasn't approaching him the right way in the way that I was so-called disciplining him at that time. And I feel really embarrassed to admit that, but I'm someone who feels like you have to well, actually, I just listened to your Dan Pink podcast, and he talks about this, the power of regret. And I regret that I was doing these things like sitting him on the curb for not having his homework, which feels, I feel a lot of shame when I admit that, but I also understand I was young in my career, and this is what we did. We penalized kids for not having their homework. So to make that story kind of, to wrap it up, this particular student, I just really began to support him in a whole new way. And long story short, he graduated from the University of Southern Indiana two years ago. I have stayed in his life the entire time. And I feel like if anything, he has actually been my teacher about life versus me being his. But he began to be one of the wise in education. I decided that there was never going to be a student who left my classroom who did not feel seen, heard, and loved, and also know that without a doubt, I 100% believed in him. And to this day, he will send me a text message that says, you believed in me when almost no one else did, and it made a difference in my life. So I think from there, I was like, okay, I want to, not because I know it all, but because I can use my story of where I went wrong and I can guide teachers on this path to helping them create classrooms where students feel those very things. And I think that's how my idea of Strobel Education came about. You know, we provide a lot of professional development around the country on topics that are very relevant, but that is a very core theme that runs through what we do. You know, so that's what it <laughs> well, it's it's hearing you talk. Um, and, you know, this this story is not one that I've heard uh, prior to now. And, uh, you know, I started as a fourth and fifth grade teacher, too. And we all have these kind of touchstone stories, you know, in our career and our life. And I have a particular student that I'm not going to talk about now because one, I would um, end in a very, very emotional. So I'm not going to start other than say, there was a student very similar to yours that I know that I had that I actually felt with, like I was successful with. And then later upon reflection, realized I failed and I failed this kid. And you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I would do it different now. I did the best I could at the time, but that story um, will never leave me, and it will always serve as a internal driver for me about why education and relationships with between teacher and student is so important. And so I think the fact that you described your why by describing a, a scenario that you had with a student that had some success and some challenges, uh, very telling about you. But in the meantime, you're not a fourth, fourth grade teacher anymore. So um, a lot has happened since then in your life. I'm wondering, can you walk us through how you went from a fourth grade teacher to what you do now. I mean, clearly the work that you're doing is leaving a legacy. 
But how did you come to define what you wanted that legacy to be? And what was the path to get there? And the reason I ask you this is because I, I can appreciate how you humbly describe it. Some people may see you on a stage, be extremely impressed and motivated, but they also probably need to hear about how that came to be. You weren't, you weren't born on that stage and you didn't start there. So can you walk us through a little bit about that narrative? I think that's important to everything else we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, over the over this chat. Yes, absolutely. And I want to say before we get in that, that Corey is actually the star of one of the keynotes that I do, which is Remember Your Why. And so um, he thinks that's pretty special. He also feels like his story needs to be shared so that he can make an impact. Um, yeah, so going back to how I got to where I am. I have to tell you, and I, I know I've said this before, but sometimes when I get introduced as a happiness coach and I come out onto the stage and there's thousands of faces looking back at me, I feel like 80% of the people are like a happiness coach. Like who's this cheerleader that's gonna stand up there and preach all this, like, just be positive and you know do this and do that and rah, rah, rah. And so, you know, that particular keynote is called the science of happiness. And from the get go, I normalize what I'm here to do, because it is very easy to say, like, you know, you see this woman walk on to the stage and it looks like and I do at times live this really big, wonderful, beautiful life where I'm, you know, I took 23 flights in the month of August. It, it, it's a <laughs> wonderful life. But immediately I say, let me tell you my path to where I am today. And, you know, I am somebody who struggled and have at times still struggled with a debilitating anxiety disorder. When I look back at my childhood, I see the beginnings of it. I had two younger brothers and I remember going outside and if I couldn't immediately spot them in the neighborhood, I would come in and just catastrophize and tell my mom, like something's happened to my brothers, like they've been kidnapped, they're lost. And my mom's like, they're just down at the neighbors. And so I was this worry wart from the get go. And then that really kind of changed. Like in middle school, it transpired to if my dad wasn't home by six o'clock on the dot, I was convinced he had died in a car accident. And I was in the bathroom shaking all over every single night from 5.55 to six o'clock when he got there. Now, that being said, I, I was also high functioning. I was uh, an athlete and, you know, functioning normally to the outside world. But inwardly, I had some of these struggles and my parents were concerned about it. Fast forward to my sophomore year and uh, things are great and I'm, I'm loving life and I'm stepped into kind of my confidence. And I was sitting in my high school English language arts class and within half of a second, literally, we actually know the brain fires the fight or flight response in one fourteenth of a second. I felt this immense terror come over me where I felt like I was fighting consciousness. I felt confused about my surroundings. I wasn't sure what, I knew my name was Kim Sablehouse, but I didn't know why. My whole body began to tremble, shake, um, and I felt like I had to get out of this classroom immediately or I was going to die. And that set off from age 16 until about age 24 was an intense, suffering in my life. 
And it wasn't until I was about 23, you know, that I got a diagnosis of panic disorder with agoraphobia. So what happened is I quit college, of course, because I couldn't go to class. I couldn't even be 60 miles away from my parents. I struggled to sometimes walk to my mailbox or drive five minutes to work or stay alone as a young adult. I always said that, you know, two-year-olds were functioning better than me. They could go to Walmart and they would happily kind of, you know, go around the aisle from mommy or daddy. And I'm a 20 two-year-old woman who has to have her husband by her side the whole time in Walmart because I'm convinced that I'm going to completely lose my mind or die within a second if this attack comes on again. And so I began to have these attacks all of the time. And so my life just became really, really narrow. That being said, Jeff, no one except for my husband knew I was struggling with this. Um, I felt deep shame. There was no name for it until I got a name for it. I didn't understand what was wrong with me. Um, and I, I tell people, I tell this in my story on the stage that I remember my husband would go to work about 15 minutes before I did every day. And of course that caused immense anxiety in me. And so I would go stand by the wall phone ready to dial 911 because of course I'm, I'm having these feelings come on. And on this particular day, for whatever reason, I just went into my bathroom and it was the mid 90s. So I always tell people that the decor was like forest green and burgundy. Do you remember that? Sure. Of course. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah. we all had like everything was forest green and burgundy. And to this day, when I tell this story, I do feel the emotion bubble up because Jeff, I was somebody who was suffering so much and I still can remember, you know, putting my cheek on the four screen bath mat and curling up. And it's like my inside didn't match my outside. I wanted to live. I wanted to have this wonderful life. But every 15 minutes of every single day felt like a struggle. And so I really pleaded with God and I said, I need you to take my life. Like, I can't do it. I don't have the courage to do it or whatever it takes. But like, can you just take me from this world so that I don't have this suffering anymore? And when I look back at that, there was some type of message and there was something that I heard or felt that said something along the lines of, Kim, you are made for more and a series of divine interventions took place after that where I went to my general practitioner. He happened to know about anxiety disorders. He diagnosed me. He put me on an antidepressant. He gave me the name of a counselor and I started cognitive behavioral therapy where I had to do things like, today, Kim, you're gonna drive to Walmart five minutes away from your home, which felt like there's just no way I can do it. And you're gonna walk into Walmart and you're going to walk to the back corner and you're going to touch the wall and then you can leave. And if you would have said, Kim, that or I'll cut your two arms off, I would have been like, you got to take my, like, I can't do it. So you're going to have to take my arms. But at that time, once I started doing that work, I also encountered the self-help field and I started to find this fire inside of me that actually said, Kim, you have more responsibility with your life than what you think. Mm 
And so what I really feel like I did and still do to this day, Jeff, is I'm constantly working on the internal blueprint that runs Kim Strobel. And I regress sometimes, you know, Sure. and I have to go back and do the work again. So I usually start with that story and it's amazing what happens to people in the crowd. We don't share our vulnerabilities, the people within our schools. You, you guys talked about that. You and Dan Pink talked about that. It's scary to share our vulnerabilities, our struggles, our stories. And so what we have is we have educators who are going up and down the hallway, smiling and greeting everyone. And they're going in, they're getting in their car and crying on the way home because they have to go to their second job because they cannot make it on their, their teacher salary or they're completely spent and, and overly, you know, exhausted from the day's work and feel like they have nothing left for their family. And so I feel like it's important that we share our stories with each other. And then what I like to do is plant a pathway of hope out of our story. Well, you know, this, the, the concept, of, even of what you just did, but also what you do in front of others, which is, um, you know, kind of come clean and to be extremely vulnerable. Um, I have to assume for many people, it's just refreshing and an opportunity opens the door for them to potentially do the same. Sadly, um, educational leaders, which is, you know, who we often are supporting, um, don't feel like there is space to be that. They don't feel like, you know, you and I are both, say, fans of Brene Brown, who really pushes and promotes us to be vulnerable. In the meantime, an educational leader thinks, no, I'll be judged. I can't do that. I can only try to demonstrate proficiency. I will yes. try to demonstrate and promote that I am proficient and can do this. But if I'm vulnerable, then um, it's just a matter of TikTok and I won't be here very long. And sadly, sometimes that's even true because of the political nature of what we're living through. But I think it's really important that you continue to model that um, on, the, on behalf of other people, specifically educators. And so I can just imagine how appreciated that is. Um, as opposed to come out and just launch into strategies. Yeah, you know, I was giving a keynote in Long Island, New York last year, and the superintendent stood up. I, I mean, it was just crazy. I had no idea. And he shared that he had been battling panic disorder for the last year. I couldn't believe that a school leader, I, I felt myself settle in and mm -hmm. go, wow, really? But I also get where it's really hard, especially for school leaders to be vulnerable because let's be honest, there's a total lack of community support when it comes to education and teachers and teacher leaders. And, you know, there is a mistreatment that I believe the pandemic even further exposed. There's a mistreatment right now of school leaders and teachers. And so, you know, Taking those risks feels very scary for them, and I understand why. You know, it's uh, it's for for me and for you too, right? In in a lot of ways, we are no longer um, in the trenches, as some would um, say, as Heifetz would say, we're no longer on the dance floor. We're living on the balcony, but we do have the opportunity to 
to peer over often and look to what's happening on the dance floor. And as, as we do so, as I do so, I, I see certain trends, certain things that um, are motivating and certain things that are, I think are, are, they, they worry me. Right now, I mean, I, I left the seat pre-COVID in terms of being in the trenches and the world clearly has changed. The education, the role of the educator, the teacher, the leader has changed. It's become so much more complicated and it used to be complicated. I used to say it's not rocket science. It's way more complicated than that. So curious, um, when you look at educators, teachers, leaders right now, and some of their challenges and burdens that they're carrying now compared to even just five years ago, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Well, I, I think that educators feel very voiceless. You know, I don't feel like they, um, I don't feel like they feel like they have the means to really initiate change because they feel very sucked into a system that delegates how we're supposed to show up and all the T's we're supposed to cross and the I's we're supposed to dot. On top of that, I think that no one, unless you're in the walls of those classrooms or leading those teachers, no one outside of that understands truly how difficult it is to serve children's educational, emotional, and psychological needs. I have a friend who's a principal at the local elementary school, and she said, Kim, I have 75, 75 students whose parents signed over the rights for us to take control of their behavior and medical um, um, support, you know, so they meet with a doctor who is sent to their school to evaluate and prescribe and support students who come from really bad home lives. And I asked her and she said, most of the time it's a drug issue, you know? And so I think that people don't understand exactly how much that's increasing for us. And that's a, that's one teeny tiny piece of it. But I also think what that does, Jeff, is it, it makes us feel really inadequate. You know, I remember, you know, when I, 15 years ago, I remember walking out of my classroom every day. And if I did 99 things right, and I, I screwed up one thing, I, I just kind of walked with my head down low, like, you know, really beat myself up over that one thing. It just never felt like enough. And so I think that the pandemic has exasperated all of that on top of the fact, I mean, I read a, a statistic just last night that said that, you know, teachers are five times more likely to take on an additional part-time job. And I know as a teacher, I did that to supplement my income. I tutored kids after school. I tutored kids before school. I tutored kids during the summer. I taught Monday and Wednesday night classes at the local Ivy Tech. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, what do they have left over for any other parts of their life when all of this has been exasperated? All of that being said, Jeff, is I'm a proponent that we, you know, I don't know how much we can change the current education system. I would like to think that we have power and I haven't invited, been invited yet to DC, but I have a lot to say to those people and I'm waiting for the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> but I always say we may not change the system, but we, we have to look at 
the only place we have power, the only place you have power in your life is you. So you can change how you operate within the system. And that's what I really focus on. What part is in control? And let's focus on where you do have your power. So I know that there's always this balance of, you know, if you talk about the current realities, let's, let's say of the, the conditions and the challenges of schools um, and what's happening in, in education. Um, it's very easy to describe it and come across as an extreme pessimist, right? It'd be very easy. Give me five minutes and I can almost prove that I am so worried about the state of education and where it's headed. Um, and I would just probably depress people listening to me. But in the meantime, um, you know, if I'm just purely hopeful and I just describe um, this, uh, this bliss to try to inspire others, I'll also lose them because they would be aware that I'm not in touch with reality. How do you find the balance of being honest and being clear with some of your worries and some of what you see or what you would say if you were actually on the Hill in DC talking to, uh, to legislators and lawmakers. But how do you um, make sure to you know, contrast that with an opportunity to you know, have hope and some sense of wellness, which we all need? How, how do you do that? Well, you know, I think that educators are, you know, it's one of the most vital, noble, sacred professions out there, yet they are the hardest working people that I know. They are so passionate about, you know, being there for kids, about setting them up for success. Like not, none of us went into this profession because we thought it would be easy, although I will say it's been a lot harder than any of us thought. But they're also just some of the most selfless members of our workforce. And on top of all that, on top of their passion and their purpose and, and the way their heart and their soul calls them to serve, you know, like their soul lights up when they know that they have supported or changed a student's life. But I'm going to also say that they are among some of the most disrespected and undervalued human beings right now. And so I don't mind to talk about the hard stuff because it's very important to validate that this is where the current system is and this is how hard the profession is but it's like with every single thing that happens in our life and i teach this through the happiness research jeff that kind of blows people's mind and we can go there if you want but what i'm going to tell you is is that the human brain human beings what we know is that they can endure really hard things. They can endure traumas and injustices and you know challenges and unfair things, but they also, believe it or not, can take certain actions, thoughts, and behaviors and actually create much more happiness and well-being in their life. And the research shows us this. And I'm going to give you an example. In my head, I'm kind of going, do I give this example or do I not? It's too late. Was, Go ahead. You, now you have to give it. <laughs> I was in, uh, in Florida keynoting on growth mindset um, in, in Tampa last month. And I'm talking about growth mindset and how we can overcome hard things. And I'm talking about how the happiness research says that only 10% 
of our long-term happiness is our external circumstances, which blows people's minds, right? I can take every single external circumstance. This is what the science says. Are you married, single, divorced, or widowed? Do you have kids? Do you not have kids? What kind of money do you make? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of profession do you have? We can take all of those things that happen to a person in their lifetime. And the research says it only accounts for 10% of their long-term happiness. That's mind-blowing. It is. And I fight with the research, Jeff. I do. Sometimes I think, you know what? There are certain things that if those things happen to me, I do not know that if I could ever recover my happiness. But as I'm talking through this keynote and I start to ask the crowd to share what is some challenge that you had to overcome? What is something that you had to find your path out of the darkness and into the light? And did you do it? And there was, and I'm, I'm allowed to share this story because she's actually going to be, uh, her story is included in the book I'm writing. But a wonderful 55-year-old or so woman named Alina stood up and she began to kind of shake. And she said, let me tell you how I've embraced a growth mindset and found a path to joy and happiness in my life. She began to tell a story of when she was a young woman, she had a young son and her, her young son's father took her little boy, just came and grabbed him and took him. So she followed him to his apartment and he and his six friends gang raped her in front of her little boy. And she told this story with tears. And, and here's the thing, Jeff. I think the research says that one in four women have been raped. So what was really interesting is I scanned the audience and so many women were shaking their head like this has been done to me too. And it was really hard, but beautiful to hold space for this woman who was sharing her story with a crowd of people who needed to hear this. And she said, Kim, I decided after that happened, I was not going to let this traumatic event define who I am, how I show up in my life, and how much happiness I deserve. Because I wasn't going to let myself become that person for my son. And then she even told that her son had died last year from a drug overdose. And when I asked her, Alina, do you feel happiness and joy in your life? And she said, absolutely, Kim, I absolutely do. But she said, I choose it. I choose it every day. And what I know is there are a lot of Alinas out there who support, believe it or not, what this research tells us. And so for me, I think that my work here is to talk about the hard stuff because that is the gateway to getting to the good stuff. But once we talk about the hard stuff, what I know is that we have to get out of victim mode. Victim mode destroys our life. And even with my panic disorder, I had to get out of victim mode and into warrior mode. What do you have control over, Kim? I only have, that's the only thing I have control over is me. And to me, that is empowering when we begin to understand that we actually can take control of our life 
regardless of our circumstances, and we can find happiness and well-being and peace in our life at times. Are there times I'm still over there in the gutter crying and whining around? You bet, right? Absolutely. But I have a set of tools that get me out of the gutter quicker now. Well, that that story you just shared is sobering and almost hard to follow in some ways. I, to be quite honest, I um, it, it puts a lot into perspective. And sometimes it's important for those stories, therefore, to be shared, specifically by the people who is, have experienced incredible trauma in their lives. Um, now, let's maybe let's try to pivot into this this concept of the science of happiness a little bit. And the last, the last time that we talked, kind of preparing for this discussion, I was taking notes because, you know, like all good students do. And I, I, I wrote down toxic positivity and um, uh, hedonic adap uh, adaptation. Did I say that correctly? Yes, and did. so in my head, I thought, I thought, I think I know what these are. Between then and now, I did a little research um, and I'm not prepared to give a mini lesson on that, but you are. So talk to us a little bit about those things and the impact that they have and some of the remedies and let's, let's get into the science of it because I think that's a really important part of your message and your content that I've been able to, to learn about since we first talked. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like the underlying expectation in the world we live in today is this idea of of positivity like you know if i share a struggle i'm having and even if it's like a small little thing and then someone says to me <laughs> my mother god love her now kim focus on all the blessings in your life <laughs> i just want to i'm just like you know, or if you tell somebody like, I'm struggling with this, or I'm ticked off about this, I'm angry about this, I'm disappointed. And people say, now listen, that's not going to do you any good. Let's just focus on what's going right in your life. Let's shift your brain to abundance and positivity. Let me tell you what, you want to destroy somebody, you do what we call toxic positivity, which is you invalidate they're heavy feelings. And I don't call them negative feelings. They're not. They're heavy feelings. They're feelings like disappointment and anger and shame and frustration. They're just heavy feelings. And we're allowed to have those feelings. And so we do this thing. And Brene Brown even talks about it. She's like, people do comparative suffering where, you know, something bad happened like to someone and then something kind of semi happened to you and the person goes well at least you're not like so and so she's she's got this going right now and all of a sudden you just feel diminished and so i feel like we have to quit just telling people just you know pivot your brain to positive because that that has the reverse effect that seeps down into the cellular makeup of who we are and turns into resentment and bitterness and so i really like to make it clear that I am not preaching toxic positivity. I am saying we better start talking about our heavy feelings in education, but we also have to learn a set of tools that are within our power that guide us out of that quicker. Too many times I think that we as human beings stay in the victim of our circumstances. 
and we blame our circumstances for our current state. And I always tell people, and I, I, I'm, I'm a coach at heart, so I'm like, you know what? Like, if I'm just going to say it. If my husband left me today, I would feel devastated. I would be very upset and I would lose a lot of my happiness. I don't know if I'd lose it for six months or, or you know, a year. But I'm going to tell you what, if Kim Strobel's over there still blaming Scott Strobel three years from now, that's on me. Like there's a point in time where you have to go, I have to take 100% responsibility for my life. And I can't continue to let all of that seep out at me. So I guess if I'm going to sum that up, quit telling people, quit, quit dismissing people's heavy feelings, allow them to have them, but then let's create a path that gets us through those and on the other side eventually. I see. Okay, so now let's shift to this, you know, something I had a hard time describing, right? Hedonic adaptation. Yeah. So walk us through that because this is this is really important, at least I found since the last time we talked. So can you walk us yeah, through that? I can. I'm actually going to jump into more of the happiness research because that leads me yes, into perfect. hedonic adaptation. So what we know is that every human being has what's called a set baseline happiness level. So maybe my set baseline happiness level is here and someone else's is here. And so what this means, Jeff, is that good things maybe happen in our lives. Like, I don't know, we get a new job or we get married or um, our kid gets into the college we wanted them to get into. Whatever it is, good things happen in our life and our happiness level goes up for a period of time. Might be two hours, might be two days, might be two weeks. But what we know is it always comes back to whatever your baseline is. Mm-hmm. And so then what we know is the opposite is true. We actually know that people can endure really hard things, that they can lose their happiness because of a situation or an event or a challenge or a struggle, but that human beings have the ability to reset themselves back to their baseline. Their brain will literally come back. Now, I wanna make it known, I'm not talking about people who have, you know, we know that people have medical and emotional conditions like depression, and I'm not saying like, oh, your brain should, please don't misunderstand me, but I'm talking about like the general population, we have the ability to bounce back. And here's why. Because we have this mechanism in our brain that was wired in us from way back when called hedonic adaptation. It's a survivability mechanism. And so I always tell people, think about like when it's freezing outside, it's really, really cold and you come in the house and you go sit by the fire and you're sitting by the fire and it feels so warm and so toasty and it feels amazing. And then after two minutes, it no longer feels amazing and you're in fact ready to to leave the room and go somewhere else. That is hedonic adaptation happening in your brain. Your brain is adjusting for adaptability and survivability. And so that is where the research says, this is also true of when, and and Jeff, I'm sure you have evidence of it, of people you know, I am positive, you know people who have endured really hard things, who have even endured the unimaginable. And you know, not that they don't have that grief and that loss in their life, but they bounce back. Christopher Reeve, is a prime example. Sure. He lost the ability. He was quadriplegic. And he talks about 
his happiness and his well-being even in the last parts of his life. And so I find that fascinating when I'm learning and understanding the facets of the human brain. So when we look for the, at this from the uh, leadership perspective, leaders who are often driven to this concept of servitude, wanting to serve others. And in, in, in the school setting, in the educational setting, we've already described and defined how difficult um, that is. So they're trying to serve those um, that are incredibly challenged from teachers and obviously the impact that um, students are facing in their families, et cetera, and leaders are trying to serve that. In the meantime, leaders also are going through challenges of their own based upon circumstances and just the emotional turmoil of um, trying to lead in an environment that's difficult, such as education is. What, what would you advise for leaders to focus on as kind of some of the basic building blocks to really think about the kind of the culture and climate that serves others well beyond just what they do day to day? What, what does a leader do in this environment? So are you kind of referring to the happiness habits that kind of make the biggest difference to finding our way back to well-being, both with our employees in the schools and also in our own professional roles? Yes, I'm, I'm thinking about so the, 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 the district leader or the principal. What, what sort of things are what would be building blocks for them to focus on some of those kind of key areas that have a ripple effect? Because, you know, I mean, where does one start? So how would you, where, how would you talk to a leader about where to start? Yeah, I, I'm going to say that we have to start with the social and emotional well-being of the people within our building. Um, you know, the, the, the happiness research is really strong in saying that it's not that you know, so many people have the formula for kind of happiness backwards. We're, we're kind of taught that we're, there's a social script that says if we want to arrive at happiness, um, we need to go to school, we need to get a good degree, we need to work really hard, we need to, um, you know, work even harder, we got to keep going and keep going and, and keep kind of stepping up the ladder, so to speak, so that eventually, on the other side of that, we can have you know, the 2.5 kids, the beautiful home, the great career, the whatever it might be. And Sean Acor's research actually says this is completely backwards. If you want to start getting results within your schools, within your organizations, within your personal life, happiness is the very first thing that takes place. Happiness comes first. And when we put happiness and well-being at the forefront, we know from the research that we change every single educational outcome. So this is why now a lot of my work is, you know, going in and, and working on the culture and climate. And it's very focused on the happiness habits that we can incorporate that are going to get us leverage. And here's why. Here's what the research says, that when we can get your brain to positive versus negative, neutral, or stressed, we see the following things happen. You are 31% more productive in your job. Wow. But here's what we do, Jeff, as school leaders. We just stay in our buildings. We just keep cranking it out. We, we can't leave, we, there's too much to be done. What they don't realize, because all of us were, were trained this way, we don't realize that actually certain parts of our brain are shut down 
because we're in stress, negative or neutral mode. We don't have access to that. And so it's taking those big, bold risks of saying, I have got to create boundaries as hard as that is. And I know that's not an easy term. And I know people are saying, oh, Kim, well, why don't you come over here and do my job? (laughs) Tell me how I can get out this door any earlier than 530. I do understand that. That being said, it's a hard look at where our priorities are and understanding the research that supports this. Not only are you 31% more productive, but when we can get employees' brains to positive versus negative, neutral, or stressed, get this, Jeff, they are 10 times more engaged in their job. 10 times more engaged. They are 23% less stressed and they are three times more creative, which means you can, all of a sudden, you can see opportunities before you that you couldn't see before because your brain was shut down. You can see solutions to problems that your brain couldn't see before. So a big part of my work when we're looking at the climate and culture of schools and how do we take this beast that is out of control and rein it in It's actually putting happiness, well-being, and social and emotional learning at the top for the people who work within our buildings. And and I want to tie this back to the research. What we know when we look at that baseline, people go, well, why is Jeff's here and yours is here, Kim? Well, if you think of your happiness as a pie chart, we know that 50% of your long-term happiness is genetic. It comes from your mom or your dad, or a mixture of both. And when I say this, Jeff, 80% of the heads in the crowd dip and they like, <laughs> they're like, I'm so, like, I'm so screwed. Yeah, you I'm know? Screwed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But again, I'm going to shift you back. So 50% is genetic, 10%, and only 10 is your external circumstances. The part that fires me up the most, the part that we implement in schools, is that there's 40% left of the pie. And every human being has the ability to increase their happiness levels by up to 40%. And when you do that, Jeff, I'm going to tell you, you will be firing in all areas of your life much better because that has to do with your actions, your thoughts, and your behaviors. Small, daily, teeny tiny habits that all of a sudden you begin to become a stronger, better, happier, more productive, more engaged leader. And so do your teachers. So, um, first off, I, th- I think you're, you're right. I, I know from a leadership perspective, personally, I used to wear my hours somewhat like a badge of honor. I would want to demonstrate my commitment to my people, my teachers, my community by being the first one there and the last one to leave. And I wanted to be known as somebody when I got home. I would also focus on work. And I, I did that because I thought that was the right thing to do. But that, that, takes, that takes its toll. And I think it's important that we somehow kind of rewire ourselves to maybe a new way of being specifically that we are living through some new times that are very confusing and challenging. Now, if most, most of our content with our, with our leaders is this roundtable process, Kim. Um, by the way, when is your new book out? Yeah, so I am submitting it June 1st, and it takes about eight months to get to publication. So we're looking at maybe December through February for it to be in physical form. 
Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna have to circle up later then um, once that comes to be because um, clearly we're only be able to touch on some of the things that I know will be in the book. So we'll make sure to dive back in uh, when the time is right specific to that content. That being said, um, the reason we do these chats is to provide some very pragmatic and digestible information for leaders. So if you were to pretend that you and I were sitting around a table with other leaders and we literally only just have a couple minutes left and but you want to you want to leave them with some really important kernels of knowledge and wisdom that you have gained along the way kind of your you know your, your drop the mic statements yeah um, brass tacks what would you want to leave leaders with around this table yeah, I would teach them one of the top five happiness habits that takes two minutes a day and people undervalue it until they make it a daily practice. And I will tell you, after coaching thousands and thousands of people and teaching them this teeny tiny habit, they always tell me that it literally changed their life. And so it's the practice of gratitude. We've heard Oprah preach gratitude for years and years and years, but I'm always somebody that if I'm going to do it, I have to understand why it's going to actually change my brain. And I have to be convinced that it is. And so what we know is that if you're an average human being, you have about 70,000 thoughts a day. We also know that if you're an average human being, 80% of those thoughts are negative, which means that when you and I put our head on the pillow at night, most of us have had 56,000 negative thoughts. We're unaware of the majority of them because they're in our subconscious mind and they're on default and they're happening so fast that we don't even know they're happening. Now, what's crazy about this research is that of the 80% of thoughts that are negative, 95% of that 80 are the exact same thoughts you had the day before. And oh. this is because, yeah, it's crazy. Oh. And this is because, this is because, you know, again, this was a built-in mechanism in our brain to protect us. Because back in caveman, cavewoman times, our brain has this thing called the amygdala, we still have it today, and its number one job was to scan for danger or negativity in order to keep us safe. Was there a saber-toothed tiger? What, would we have a water source? Would we be wiped out by this storm? Like our brain had to do that to protect itself. The problem is, is it's 2023, we still have an amygdala, and it still works the same way. But what I know from the research is that you can actually rewire your brain. So your brain has thousands and thousands of roadways and it's traveling down these roadways every day, all day long. And it's gonna go down the roadways that are the most ingrained, okay? So like, it's that whole philosophy, Jeff, of what you focus on grows. So if we're gonna just focus on all the negativity in education, you will, your brain will scan and find more evidence to back that. And so, the research says all you have to do is write down three different things, three different things you're thankful for every single day. And after 21 days, you begin to create a new neural feedback loop in your brain. Now, real quickly, and I know we're short on time, but I want to tell you, I want you, I want you to put the date. I want you to write the words I am at the top of your notebook because I am has very powerful um 
meaning to it. And then I want you to list three things you're thankful for and get this. I don't want you to be generic. I don't want you to say my health, my family, my son. No, I want you to say, I'm thankful that every Thursday night, my mom and dad have a pizza date night with us. I want you to say, I'm thankful that I have this amazing body that allows me to run 40 miles a week or whatever, you know. I want you to be specific and I want them to be three different things every day. And I'm gonna tell you what, Jeff, what happens is your brain begins to scan for more good. And when your brain scans for more good, it's more positive. And when your brain's more positive, you're more productive, you're more engaged, you're, you know, and so it's just this teeny tiny little thing that makes all the difference in the world. And in fact, well, I have a gratitude prompt and tracker that I will send to you off of my website if you want. They might not use the tracker. I, I use it with students too, but it's a prompt that they can print off that will say like, here's five areas to consider looking for gratitude in your life. Yeah, if you send me that, then what we'll do is we'll make sure to share that with our members okay. and so forth. And and two, when we post this podcast, we're, we'll talk and we'll make sure that we have the, the right links that provide people kind of access to certain resources that we've talked about today. So, um, Kim, obviously you and I, we've talked in the past. Um, even then, I think we set aside X amount of time and then we went way over. Um, and and it's, it's very clear why. I mean, not only are you um, motivating, but you, um, you provide just the right of information that demonstrates so much clarity as to why this topic is so important. And in the meantime, a path for us to think about to be able to move forward successfully. I think that what you're doing is the right thing that you were meant to do. And so um, I'm very thankful we had this opportunity to chat. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was my honor. Okay, be well. Ladies and gentlemen, I think, like I said at the very beginning, without having to introduce the why of this topic and this content, um, anyone, who is in education or thinks of educators, or, and by the way, beyond education, understands what an important concept it is for us to, to kind of meticulously consider what it means to have joy and happiness and the challenge of that in this day and age. So I'm very thankful for this opportunity to chat with Kim and more to come. In fact, I'll make sure to be knocking on her door as soon as her new book is coming to light and we'll bring her back because uh, this has been a great discussion. In the meantime, educators, ladies, gentlemen, leaders, be well. <laughs>